0: Welcome to Saving the Game. This is episode 25, Therapeutic Role Playing, recorded Thursday, September 5th of 2013, with your hosts Grant, Peter, Brandon, Mike, and Jack. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. I'm Peter. I'm Brandon. I'm Mike. And I am Jack. Welcome, Jack. We've got Jack Birkenstock, who's the chairman and executive director of the Bodana Group. Did I get it right? Uh, That is correct. Yes, Bodana. Yes, got it. Bodana. (laughs) Okay. Jack, why are you here? Uh, Why why are any
1: of us here? I mean, that's, (laughs) that's a penultimate question. No, uh... I am here to uh, speak on the benefit of therapeutic gaming or the use of role playing games as not only a hobby, but also very in line with what your aim is to use them as more of a beneficial therapeutic activity that can not only be fun, but also can teach valuable skills, help people through difficult situations, most notably adolescence, which is where I got a lot of my interest in role-playing games in this use. Also, uh, hopefully do a little plug for Save Against Fear, which thank you, gentlemen, for the plug last week. Sure. Uh, wonderful no fundraiser yeah. we have, yeah. So that's kind of my goal here.
2: I've always enjoyed things that are fun and beneficial.
1: No, just the best of both worlds. It's it's the Reese's of gaming hobby right there, you know. That's a perfect exactly. description
2: right there.
3: <laughs> yes, I, I was going to go with two birds, one stone, but the Reese's of the gaming hobby really makes sense. Yeah. I love Reese's.
1: Well, it fits a gamer's diet, so how could you not? I feel like we need to go get an m M&M and Mars endorsement real
4: quick. Anyway. I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> Man, if we can get that, we'll really have gone to the next
0: level. <laughs> I know, right? Okay, so Jack, uh, first of all, what is the Bodana Group?
1: Well, uh, the Bodana Group was a project of um, myself and about five to six uh, friends, also my wife. We all worked together at a juvenile treatment facility in of PA. And uh, unfortunately, with, you know, economy and the industry, the facility shut down. And we all kind of sat on unemployment. We said, well, you know, we could ride the system for a while. But then we figured, let's be noble and uh, kind of use this time to put our skills to use doing what we knew we'd do best, which was helping not only victims of sexual abuse, but also working specifically with perpetrators of sexual abuse. Okay. We work mainly with uh, adolescent population and pre-adolescent population, and it's definitely a demographic that is needed, and we kind of believe in a 2 pronged approach. One, you have to treat victims of abuse because they definitely need that help to be a survivor and move forward. But on the same hand, you need to treat the perpetrators because they make more victims if they go untreated. So we kind of mm-hmm. thought, let's put our skills to the test, let's treat teams, let's work on treatment innovations, solutions, helping other companies work with this population, and also working to help the staff who work within that difficult population, because that is definitely another demographic that kind of goes on song.
4: Yeah. Listeners, if you're wondering why we got this guy on, you have not been paying attention <laughs> after that description. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: You're absolutely right. And so the Bodana Group's been working for a couple of years now? Yeah. Is that correct? Uh, Bodana was officially
1: incorporated in 2009, so we're on our fourth year anniversary now. And you're an official nonprofit, right? Yes. 501c3, 501c3. 501c3. Okay. That, that actually, ironically, was the first thing we got done. Most uh, agencies wait until a little bit of time has elapsed, but we figured we'd kind of knock that out of the box
0: first. Well, I'm, I'm glad to have you on. And the thing I'm really excited by, aside from the conversation we're about to have, is your fundraiser, which is in its third year now, right? Correct. And this is Save Against Fear, which is a gaming convention in Lancaster. Yes. Save Against Fear, uh, to be honest, it initially came out of the
1: idea that we needed funds because of lack of traditional grant funding for what we right. wanted to do. So we figured, what do we know? And about 75% of the Bodana group are avid gamers in their own right. So we kind of sat around and said, what could we do as a fundraiser And we then ran the first Save Against Fear, which, you know, was kind of a small outing for the first time. And as we were doing the event, and specifically when I was talking to uh, Rich Thomas from White Wolf Games, he had shared with me some stories about how he had gotten letters over the years from people who had written in to White Wolf saying, you know, even though it's like a horror setting, a very kind of scary thing, he said, I've gotten letters from people that said, this experience of gaming in this environment has really helped me deal with a lot of trauma. That fighting the monsters in the game then kind of correlated to these people as to fighting the monsters within.
4: And Hmm. from the moment... That's very interesting.
1: I mean, from the moment we had that conversation, I was like, okay, wait a minute. There's something here. More than what we had initially thought of just kind of turning our hobby into a fundraiser. So at that point, we kind of got together and we were like, what about therapeutic role-playing games so we shared our personal stories and how they had helped us during turbulent periods in our own lives mm-hmm. right. um, and then we also had used them for some social groups at the facility what we kind of found was the the guys were getting along better they're working better as a team we saw some problem-solving skills developing with the guys so we we're like wow looking back on it we never really put the pieces together So initially, I have to say thanks to Rich from White Wolf because without that kind of impetus, we wouldn't have started to make the connection that we're really going kind of full strength with now.
0: Very cool. And Save Against Fear, like I said, it's in its third year. Pretty big convention now. You've got a three-day con planned.
1: Yes. uh, Three-day convention will be held at the Lancaster Convention Center that is in downtown Lancaster. October, let me get the dates right, 11th through the 13th? That is correct. Uh, Friday the 11th through Sunday the 13th. We're basically running seven blocks of about four to five hours a pop, and we literally have exploded within the last couple weeks. We've gotten a lot of internet traffic and, I mean, special events. We have the Pathfinder Society running about 21 sessions of Pathfinder for the weekend. Uh, We have members of the Catalyst Game Labs team coming out. We are officially part of the Year of Shadowrun. Excellent. It's pretty much uh, systems from all genres. We we have our D&Ds, we have our Shadow Runs. we also have members of the Grown as Gamers podcast coming out to run sessions and support the event as well. So it has literally exploded hand over fist. We have a lot of new people who are coming out to run games, donating their time, which is always phenomenal. We have support from about 13 different companies in the industry, including White Wolf, Kenzer & Company, Chaosium, R-Talsorian, uh Steve Jackson Games is on board for the second year in a row. Marvelous. Yeah, ton of prize support, ton of fun. Uh, basic design is it's $40 at the door for the weekend. If you go to www.saveagainstfear.com, you can pre-register, getting yourself a $10 discount. We're looking to have nice little kind of entry swag for everybody as well as prizes for the weekend. Uh, and it's a chance to – you guys said it best last week. Um, what was the phrase that you had used? Because uh, Jared of the Modona, he wants to to market that like as a bumper sticker or something. It, it was just so beautiful. He's
0: entirely welcome
1: to do so, actually. Oh, careful what you wish for there. <laughs>
4: <laughs> no, go for it. If we can help yeah. you guys you know, take our verbiage.
3: Play good games with good people and do good things or something like that. That is, a, yes, was, that is exactly.
4: Um, good people playing games while doing good works,
0: I think was the specific wording.
4: Should we do our scripture and uh, get into the meat of the discussion then, guys? Or Yeah, <laughs> let's go ahead.
0: I can't find the thing anyway. All right. All right, let's get our scripture going. Who wants to do our Old Testament reading?
2: I can do that. All right, All right. go for it. So this is Psalm 103, verses 2-5. through 5. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfy you with good as long as you live, and that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And if you don't mind, I'll take the second one here.
0: Book of Luke, chapter 7, verses 20-23. to 23. One of my favorites. When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus had just then cured many people of diseases, plagues, and evil spirits, and had given sight to many who were blind, and he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. And then this last one is Could I offer John to eight. take oh.
1: that, if you don't mind? Please. Please. Okay. Yeah, uh, go for this it. This is uh, John 8, verses 3 through 11. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go on your way, and from now on, do not sin again.
0: Thank you very much. Aside from talking about Save Against Fear, Jack, we wanted to talk to you about the tool that you guys use, uh, therapeutic role playing. You brought a couple of points in on this, but I wanted to start with kind of a definition of what therapeutic role playing means, what it is. Okay. Kind of from the
1: top down, when we talk about therapeutic role-playing, there are a bit of similarities. There already is therapeutic role-playing. It, it's been a tool that's been in use in psychotherapy and other different modalities for, for quite some time, which basically, uh, in its plain form of therapeutic role-playing, it came from what they call person-centered approaches or person-centered therapy, which was where the individual is basically believed and imbibed with their own healing power, as it were. So, what you do is you take an individual and you have them go through, rehearse, discuss, you know, what their various trauma might be or the traumatic moment or situations that they're going through. And by playing various roles within that, they kind of are allowed to arrive at their own solutions. So, they come to their own conclusions through playing roles within that paradigm. Okay. So, that's kind of the basic on therapeutic role playing. Now, what we're kind of advocating is the therapy use of role-playing games as, you know, like I said, not only as a fun activity, but it's actually a little bit more akin to what they call drama therapy, where you may have a person, instead of just talking about their own situation or their own issue, people actually may take on different roles or may take on dramatic personas with the intent of kind of acting out things that are apart from themselves. So in this way, you play a role, that allows you to gain empathy, gain insight, gain understanding from a perspective that you might not have seen before. But a lot of times they actually do it just more dramatically. So that's kind of a little bit more akin to what we're kind of talking about. And the idea is when you have a person who's who's going through a difficult situation. I mean, if you really want to unwrap the whole thing, there's, there's multiple different levels that we sure. have developed this approach to. And we always start by saying gaming in and of itself automatically has benefits that are therapeutic. So something as simple as if I game in a historical context, then I'm learning history. Dice rolls and mechanics, I'm learning math. Reading some of the rule books, I'm learning some pretty good English as I go along.
0: Well, I hope so. (laughs) True.
4: (laughs) True. For various uh, values of good English, I mean, if you're reading <laughs> yeah. third edition GURPS books, yeah. If you're reading certain Palladium books,
3: not so cough, cough, much. Cinnabar.
2: Um... <laughs> <laughs> Glitter Boy is a very important term to learn. <laughs> true, true. Uh,
3: the one thing that I was reminded about that is the uh, Pathfinder GM's guide has a, a list of just all these words, and it's just words filling one page of their book in little tiny mm-hmm. font that says, Every GM should know these words. <laughs>
1: Huh, wow, interesting! Oh, that's cool. Do you remember what any of those words are? No, uh, <laughs> so, so it's working. No, I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it
4: the Pathfinder people have completely failed in their goal. to <laughs> right. Brandon learn this vocabulary. I
3: haven't read or looked up any of those words, <laughs> but I've been tempted. And well, there you go. Darn it. And if I wanted to, I would have done it, but I'm apparently lazy, and so I haven't. But they're there, so...
0: There we go, and you know they're there, and you can go look them up if you need to. There mm-hmm. you go. Yeah, and one of the things we've talked about on this show really throughout its history has been that the fellowship inherent in role-playing games, You know, the, the fact that you're getting multiple people together at a table, problem-solving and creating these social bonds by doing things together is... Inherently a good thing. I imagine that that's some of it. Some people who feel isolated by the trauma they've been through, or the trauma maybe they've inflicted on others, and how others treat them as a result of that. I imagine it's nice to interact with people. Oh, you know, before yeah. we
4: before we dig into that too much, I would also say that uh, the inherent community that you build out of that has additional benefits even away from the gaming table. We all know each other through the forums of another podcast.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Heck, I met my wife because somebody wanted me to come by and start playing D&D with them. My wife stopped by to say hello and show off their, uh, her Halloween loot, <laughs> and now I'm married. Um, <laughs>
3: and those are exactly every step that happened in between there.
0: <laughs> shockingly close. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I joke, but it's just one of those things where, yes, D&D actually did get me married. No, you're completely correct. I mean, the the one thing
1: about gaming just as a hobby, I mean, speaking more for me, I was kind of an awkward teen, a little bit, you know, out from the norm, and role-playing, I mean, I received no judgment whatsoever because we were all sharing this unique hobby that other people didn't share. So even within that kind of label as an outcast, I guess. There was still an identification as a small nick group, so I didn't get acceptance from the larger peer group, but I had acceptance from the smaller group, which encouraged the hobby, and then, you know, obviously you can't just game all the time, so we started to hang out and do other things, so that love of the game then naturally turned into just love for life and doing more and other, and, and other things. So it's it's a natural sideline benefit of forming those bonds. So, yeah, that's probably one of the principal benefits that goes along with the educational aspect. I mean, the social, you you Mm -hmm. pretty much cleaved off most of them right there. Your social skills, your problem solving, you know, working through differences with people. It's the same as any group. We have forming, storming, conforming, and norming. any group process, you're going to have to go through those difficult periods, even if it's over a die roll, you're still learning to (laughs) problem-solve and deal with emotional difficulty.
4: And then you also wind up with a support network as part of it, which is great.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, without a doubt. So I was just curious, too, about, um, you know, when people are are coming to the Madonna group and uh, looking for therapeutic role-playing, do they see the Escapism that role playing offers as something helpful to maybe even separate themselves from the past and start to look towards the future.
1: At the moment, we don't have the approach as kind of a full fledged treatment offering. That's one of the things that we're in the middle of doing. Uh, we, okay. we actually are in the process of developing a manual. It's kind of like a guidebook for use for parents as well as clinicians. You know, so it, it will be lay accessible as well as you know the professional bend. But uh, honestly, I think that that's kind of where a lot of the initial connection to gaming as an activity that then turns therapeutic, I think that's a lot of where it comes from. Because, you know, you can't really force change on a therapeutic level with people if they're not ready or comfortable for that change. So the escapism is a very welcome entrance. Because... You know, a lot of people will play initially to escape. You know, I even joke now, still playing Call of Cthulhu and Star Wars and whatever I play, that, you know, I spend all week being Jack, and sometimes that can get stressful. So, you know, for a couple hours, well, I don't want to be Jack. Well, I want right. to be my bounty hunter Rodian, or, you know, <laughs> I, I want to DM my, my Call of Cthulhu session or whatnot. So, that escapism definitely is part of the initial buy. Okay, And, and oddly enough, that escapism creates a safety zone which really is at the core of why this approach is so workable and usable. Because therapists often talk about how to have meaningful dialogue and, and expression and exchange, you have to have a safety zone. person has to feel comfortable and safe. And in the confines of the game, you have the safety of... It's your character, you have the safety of the milieu, you have the safety of friends and a support system that are there, so that natural safety zone then allows a person to relax and accept any kind of new concepts, new lessons, new skills, new approaches, because you're naturally put at ease. Right. There's a, a layer of separation there. Yeah, which can be healthy. Uh, I mean, initially, if someone does need to initially escape all of that stress that they have, now granted, and there are probably some naysayers who, who may say nay, that too much of any good thing can be a bad thing. So, you know, a person right. can eventually use it as a way to hide. So that's kind of why that balance and, you know, even drawing a person in and such, you got to be very careful with that at some points.
2: It it does. I think role playing does offer a unique brand of escapism too that you don't see in other media. Like you, I mean, you obviously you can go too far and get too involved in the escapism, but it, it is a nice separation, like you said. You know, from your day job is probably not going to have you uh, hunting down anybody, or uh, mm-hmm. trying to find some bounties. <laughs> Hopefully not.
1: Otherwise, my job yeah. description has yeah. changed dramatically. Oh, he, he,
4: his day job would be that he's a U.S. Marshal at that point. <laughs> um, <laughs> Mr. Kimball. Yeah, you know, it's, it's also both uh, social and participatory, unlike a mm-hmm. lot of other forms of escapism. I mean, if you're, if you're reading a book or watching a movie, those are passive and solitary activities. That's
2: true.
3: They're also non-interactive, and role-playing is an interactive medium. Exactly. Interactive medium is video games, and role-playing games have a leg up because you can, in some sense, customize it to the group around you, whereas video games you really can't. Oh,
1: exactly. In addition with the social interaction everything else, you have a lot of opportunity, even within that paradigm of getting a lot of people together that love the same thing, you have... A very large ability, like you said, to customize what's going on. So, I mean, it it further enhances that level. Like, you know, let's say I'm not a fantasy guy. I'm a sci-fi guy. Well, there's sci-fi RPGs out there. So you can kind of fit whatever flavor a person wants. And that just further goes to, to develop that comfort zone, that milieu. And a person just
0: can excel in that level of comfort, which is phenomenal. Now, l- let me ask you, when we talk about customizing a game, are there specific customizations you make to role-playing games that you're using in a therapeutic context as opposed to a home game?
1: There are a level of alterations that should be made or can be made depending on the individual. Most of them, I would say, are more story or milieu description-based because uh, one of the whole things about creating that comfort zone within this, this operation is that, if I'm, you know, playing with someone, and the whole concept of or idea behind us playing is to help that person ameliorate trauma or deal with trauma, well, I definitely want to be very sure that when I'm doing any kind of like event description or milieu setup, that I'm not reinfusing that trauma. So yeah, absolutely. You, you, yeah, you'd have to be very careful about how you do some of the interactions. You'd have to be very careful about the setting because the trick really with this whole approach, and I'll say this for any kind of therapy really, is that most of the time, if therapy looks too much like therapy, then I'm not invested in therapy because Mm -hmm. I'm being talked down to, or I'm being told what to do. And, and people get more investment from any therapeutic process by feeling that they generate the therapeutic content. Okay. So that's one aspect Another thing is there are maybe certain adaptations, and this is actually one of the planned sections of the book, that you'll want to make depending on maybe if a person has a diagnosis. Say you're role-playing with someone who has uh, attention deficit disorder and the brain kind of bounces around and whatnot, you may want to make your combat descriptions uh, adjust the rules a little bit to make them a little bit quicker flowing. So it's more engaging for that individual. So it's not necessarily just the story or the milieu, but there's always things to look at in terms of mechanics. There's also things to look at in terms of like distractions in the gaming setting. I know personally I've gotten a lot of good bang for the buck for my own ADD issues just because of having to stay focused because I'll miss something in the adventure, like a clue or or something. So talk about sideline benefit.
0: We had an episode... Oh, months ago, on lines and veils, which is a term that was coined in the sorcerer RPG, okay. yeah. which is basically something that you bring to the table, saying lines are lines I absolutely don't want to cross because they're topics I'm uncomfortable with, you know, and I just I don't want to think about them, or they're topics I have history with that I don't want to think about, and veils are things that can be brought up, but I don't want to participate. You, know, they can have happened, but behind the scenes, oh. and. You know, at a home game, that's perfectly fine, I would think. But in a therapeutic context, often the things that people are uncomfortable with are the things you're actively having to deal with. It's why you're there doing this therapeutic role-playing. How do you strike that balance? Because it seems like that's a really tricky thing. And it may just be, well, be careful with it, but is there something more complex
1: than that? No, I wouldn't necessarily say complex. I mean, when when you're dealing with that kind of idea, you want to, it's kind of like what they call immersion or exposure therapy, where you may have hints of it at first. You know, it's like if you're afraid of spiders, well, maybe you'll meet like a daddy longlegger first because it's a slightly small, non harmful spider. So you just kind of put maybe vestiges or aspects of what that fearful thing is. I mean, I would say that, you know, definitely if you're talking about one of those critical, issues that a person is dealing with, you definitely want to make sure to have some overcomer success conditions built in on kind of an open spectrum, because the conquering within the game would definitely kind of transmute to conquering outside of the game. So, I mean, I would definitely say that it is a fine balance, and it really is going to depend on a lot on the participant's reaction, because if, if you introduce the concept, and you see that the person's a little gun-shy about it or the person's very nervous, then you'd naturally want to pull back and then maybe introduce that mechanic again. So that slow introduction, you know, every time you're kind of hear the same scream, eventually that scream isn't so loud or so piercing because, well, I've heard it thousands of times before. So it's about that kind of idea of you introduce it, but not in like a big bang explosion kind of way because then that might be too much for that person to handle at that moment. So you're really, right. a, a lot of it is attention to the participant to see how they're doing as the material progresses.
0: Okay, and shock therapy, though it may work in movies, isn't I, actually no, good cognitive yeah. therapy.
1: That's one of the big Hollywood myths, just like, you know, it just takes one special person to make that connection, then your bipolar <laughs> just magically goes away. Well, not so
2: much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
4: Well, it's up there with you can hack different digits of a password separately. I mean...
2: (laughs) Exactly, exactly.
4: How do you deal with GMing this stuff? I mean, it sounds like it's useful, but like it would be very emotionally draining.
1: Well, that's kind of another reason why it's good to kind of slowly introduce or gently introduce a lot of the material not only for the impact to the individual, but also the impact to the person. I mean, I I would say that as just kind of a general rule of thumb, if it's heavy traumatic type of scenarios that you're talking about, obviously this is not a standalone mechanic. This is not something that should take the place of any kind of conventional therapy. It's something that should be done definitely uh, under guidance, Professional training is always recommended when you're talking about dealing with trauma. Uh, It's a very specialized field. So, I mean, I guess the clinical aspects would be more for the high-test, very heavy-duty scenarios. And when Mm -hmm. we talk about therapeutic benefit maybe on a family level, uh, we might be talking more about maybe dealing with a bully or something like maybe dealing with grief. One of the favorite examples I've always used when describing this whole approach to people as as we're developing it is – let's say you have a person who's really having a hard time dealing with grief. Well, maybe you could build into an adventure that they have to go on a quest to seek this item, and they need the item to progress through the story. Well, maybe part of getting that item could be that you would have to deliver a eulogy to the fallen hero who possessed it, or deliver a speech to gain entrance to the hall in honor of one of their fallen heroes. So, yeah. You're simulating the act of grieving, and you're helping that person develop a eulogy, so they're they're literally practicing the skill within the context of the game. Right. You're not saying, well, you're going to practice this so you can develop Grandpa's eulogy. You know, you're not that over the top with it, but it's yeah. it's still providing an atmosphere. Because uh, when you were speaking earlier about gaming being that really unique experience, you really hit the nail on the head. Role-playing games and video games specifically have, have a form of reasoning learning that is unique to those activities. There's a very good game called Everything That's Bad for You Is Good for You, and it describes <laughs> how in video games you have a learning curve that cannot be simulated or duplicated in any other activity. Because I go into a game, and I fool around with the buttons a little bit, and I've learned, oh, I can double jump here. But you get to test that world without true consequences in that system. So you're allowed the freedom of exploration, the freedom of expansion, and you're learning the rules as you go. And role-playing game is very similar, but with that interactive quality, you have the added benefit of being able to basically beta test social skills without fear of losing friends.
3: I want to discuss some of the benefits that come out of role-playing. One of the benefits could be that it's providing not only a, a safe place where... They're not in the situation and they can get some distance from where they're at. Like you're talking about the the grandpa speech and, well, you have to deliver a eulogy to your own grandpa would probably be something that, as you said, will push people away and not actually get them to actual grieving. But delivering a eulogy for this other person who isn't real and was never real, but still is something that they can practice on as being helpful. And it also gives them power. I would say. Is yeah. that right or am I just... No, you're you're completely <laughs> correct. There's a
1: lot of work that's been done with play therapy and drama therapy. There. Uh, there was an activity I read about the other night where you basically have a child create basically like a Jiminy Cricket kind of conscience avatar thing. And you basically use that persona as a way to help a child come up with decisions and, and to craft responses to a situation that they're dealing with. And really, I mean, they're talking about creating a PC that, you know, has aspects and has personality and qualities that you might want to aspire to, or on the other end, you can mm-hmm. play as a character that you, has qualities that are not favorable, and you could see the impact of those choices very much as moral lesson or moral instruction. If you're rude and underhanded to people, this is what happens. If you approach a problem this way, this is what happens. So, you know, it definitely is empowering because you're making the decision, even though it's in the vestige of your character, you're still the one making that active decision. So you're the one that's practicing the skill, but you kind of don't realize you are because you're doing it through the guise of your character.
3: I can completely totally see that, uh, especially when you're talking about like being rude to people and the consequences that fall. Cause as people who've listened know, I'm, I'm running a game called Y2112 and we just basically talk about how I'm trying to put morals and lessons in the story. Last session, there was a huge moral lesson where basically a guy that they were plotting on killing revealed that he knew about their plan the whole time and kind of chewed them out for being really, really mean to him uh, while they were in jail. And it, was effective so much that one of the players who was the most hated of this person, in character, wrote him this huge, long apology letter. Wow.
1: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's proof in the pudding right there.
2: Yeah. So, Jack, I'm curious, too. You you mentioned earlier that you deal with people who were were victims and also, um, I guess, did the victimizing, for lack of a better term. I'm curious, do you treat these situations differently when you, you know, go to look at these situations in a role-playing game?
1: Definitely. Uh, Especially, I would say, on the part of the victim. There's a couple of fine-tuned points when you talk about victim treatment. One of the things that I always say is that when you're dealing with a person who's a victim of any sort of trauma, be it, you know, sexual, physical, emotional, you always have to make sure when you're helping the person through it that you're not interpreting the trauma for them. Because a lot of people who are victimized have an innate ability to navigate, negotiate that in their own right, and and a lot of well-intending therapists will approach folks kind of gingerly, and with that kind of assumption, well-intended, that oh, that must have been horrible for you. Well, and a lot of people go, no, actually, I'm pretty okay with it. I've I've made sense of it, and I, and I'm moving forward. Right. And you know, the therapist is like, no, but that must have been horrible. Well, it wasn't until you started telling me I should feel horrible. So, wow, thanks for that. Um, So, I mean, when when approaching a person who is victimized, I mean, again, it, it always goes back to the comfort level of the individual. And it always goes back to their comfort discussing that material. I mean, some people may not even be at that point where they want to talk about that yet. So... In that way, I would say don't approach that material to force that conversation, but instead it goes back on the safe space creation, that if you create that space that will have that social adjunct and that support system connected to it, that will naturally impart to a person that if you are uncomfortable, here's people you can go to. So, I, I mean, a big factor of, of the therapeutic use of role-playing games really is, in addition to that safe space creation is all about maintaining the fun. Cause that's where you downplay the heavy therapy, but still allow therapy to result because it's not a session. It's a game. We're here to have fun, but we can still craft parts of that session to be therapeutic or have therapeutic content. Cause, cause truthfully any interaction that yields a positive benefit is therapeutic.
2: I can totally see where you're coming from there. And, The idea of make sure it's fun is, you know, really important. I I think that's that's very interesting.
4: How do you tackle it differently with the offenders, the the ones that have gone in and victimized somebody else? Is the goal to induce remorse in these people, help them through existing remorse, a little of both? What are you trying
0: to... Given that this is Again, somewhat individualized, probably.
4: Yeah. Yeah,
1: very individualized. I mean, one of the big things, and and I'll kind of put on my my SO experience hat here for a second. I hope I don't get too therapy, uh, so please stop me if I'm going too deep down the well. It used to be thought in the world of sexual offender slash perpetrator treatment that the whole goal was to do just that, to instill guilt, to instill remorse, to have a person have to, you know, take accountability, disclose everything, and develop that empathy as a necessary component. Uh, what we're actually finding out is that you get more mileage by focusing on approach goals instead. So... Instead of telling a person who's in treatment, you know, you're know, you bad, you're bad, avoid, avoid, avoid. Basically, what you're kind of unintentionally doing is you're limiting resources for that individual because you're focusing more attention on what not to do. So okay. you utilize instead what they call a self-regulation or an approach goal system, where instead of telling me what I shouldn't be or what I shouldn't do, why don't we focus on what I should be and what I can do? It's the whole thing where if you tell a person don't think about victimizing or don't think about children or population. Naturally, you have to think about something to not think about it. Right. So instead, let's focus, and and I think that your mission and your podcast exclusively really speaks to this, that, you know, let's use these more as an opportunity of kind of showing the benefits of the good side, you know, of doing good things, of having good attitudes, having good problem-solving skills, you know, all these different things that good characters would exemplify as kind of a model lesson for individuals. That was kind of the approach there. I mean, again, you can't make it too heavy when you talk, to, especially to teens, because that, you know, oh, all right, it's a lesson, I'm, I'm checking out, I'm done, Bill, <laughs> oh, you know, yeah. check please. <laughs> um, but instead, just kind of constructed that, and it's very simple in the context of gaming because... You get more with honey than you do with vinegar, so honey starts to look like a better economy.
4: So you're kind of going for the Philippians 4-8 approach, whatever is good, whatever is noble, etc. Think about this stuff instead of avoid thinking about all this bad stuff.
1: That is perfectly stated, yeah. Okay. I, I now have a new favorite verse. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Peter's great for that.
0: Yeah, Peter's probably got the best scripture knowledge of, well, Brandon, me, and Peter, I don't know about you. Peter (laughs) has
3: access to
4: Google and the ability to type quietly. (laughs) And now that his secret is revealed, all right. It was never a secret in the first place.
0: (laughs) Here's, I guess, my other question about the the challenges, and this is more an interview than I expected, but I guess that's all right. You know, there's some obvious challenges with therapeutic role-playing. There's obvious challenges in the fact that you're dealing with very personal, very sensitive topics, you know, as part of the Bodana group specifically. Obviously, the techniques you're advocating and trying to formalize are applicable to other forms of trauma, but specifically sexual trauma and sexual victimization, it's very personal and and very emotional. Is there challenges to dealing with teenagers and preteen kids trying to get them to deal with the trauma of having been victimized, or frankly the trauma of having been a perpetrator of something, is there something difficult to deal with when you're talking about children specifically?
1: Well, do you mean talking to children specifically, or talking about children as a population that has been impacted?
0: Dealing with children in a therapeutic role-playing game context, when you sit them down at the table, are there specific challenges to that that you wouldn't have with adults or older teenagers, other than trying to get them to focus, because they're 11.
1: I, I would have to say, I mean, the particular challenges would probably be more centered around getting a person invested in the game, interested in the game. Again, I don't think there's really a particular difficulty with the material. I mean, a, again, most of the a lot of victim treatment is is very strengths-based. It's about, you know, empowering the individual, strengthening the individual. So, I mean, success within the milieu of role-playing definitely lends to that empowerment. So, I mean, I guess that would probably be one of the biggest factors you'd want to put in, you know, success within the game, translating to success as the individual feeling that they've conquered obstacles, then kind of taking that, battery energy so to speak and then with the additional session material taking kind of that good feeling and translating that over into the real world that's another aspect that that's very important which is why i recommend other therapy kind of be aligned with it or working with it at some point to help translate those things out of the game into the real world
4: Guys, do you mind if I ask him some specific questions about what kinds of games he uses for this?
1: One of the things that, that we actually talked about fairly early on was whether we wanted to create our own system. And we kind of came to the conclusion that there's way too many systems out there. And, and truthfully, the kind of thing that we're talking about can be done within any system. And part of the idea behind that as well is, is just building further on that safety aspect and that zone of okay, if you, if you will. You know, if I'm a sci-fi guy... D and D won't do a thing for me. If I'm a fantasy guy, please keep me away from, you know, Shadowrun and, and other systems because it's not my bag. So, I mean, realistically, I would recommend tailoring your system to the interest level of the participant, also the mechanics and cognitive level of the individual. So, if you have something that's not really math heavy, you could get the same bang out of a storytelling type of system. Something very akin to like fairy tales or um, there's actually a very nice system. that's very child oriented uh, called Meddling Kids, which is produced by Panda Head Productions. And uh, I have not heard of oh, it. The, it's, you can get it on Drive-Thru RPG for like four or five dollars, I believe. And the, the whole idea behind the game is that you're making your own Scooby-Doo crew. So they use the archetypes of, like, the jock, the athlete, the beauty queen, you know, those kind of things. But you make your own, like, anthropomorphic talking thing. That and the kinda, Velma. Ex- exactly. The Velma.
4: Okay. Jack, are you familiar with Todd Zercher's game The Trouble with Rose? No, I'm not. It's a um, semi-competitive story-based role-playing game that just uses dominoes and playing cards. Um, I've played it several different times, including once with the creator. It's very good for giving people just enough mechanics where they're motivated and then kind of pushing the system out of the way. You may want to take a look at that one, too. I definitely shall.
3: I want to throw in there that The Trouble with Rose is great. I use it in a whole bunch of games, especially if I don't have my full party there. It's like, okay, well, we're, we're doing a Campfire Tales. Bring out the trouble with Rose. You're all playing your character. Yeah, one of
4: the one of the best single gaming sessions I ever played was that. Actually, oh, yes. nice.
3: Uh, there you go. This is a question that actually I was going to ask before you kind of answered it. So, what you're saying is, rules light systems will tend to work more for this approach than a crunchier rules heavier system, or does it just not matter?
1: I I wouldn't say that it doesn't matter completely. I would say that. For certain people, and, and again, it's it, this approach is completely about playing to the individual. I, I would say that if you have a person who is very mechanics or combat-driven, who may thrive in a minis kind of system, it would help with the immersion and the comfort level of that individual, which just helps them then, because the more immersed you are in the activity, the more benefits you're going to gain because you're catching more. You have a larger mitt, so you're going to get a bigger ball.
0: I wonder, too, if for some people having the heavy layer of mechanical abstraction helps remove yourself a little bit from the immediacy of it and adds that extra layer of, of comfort and insulation yes. against some of the topic material.
1: Oh, most, most definitely. I mean, the whole idea of the safety zone and the, and the whole PC being an identity to work with or through is all about setting up various layers of comfort between you and the, and the material. So, yeah, you're perfectly correct. The more heavy crunch that there is, I could separate myself, but I'm still immersed. So I'm not completely outside the house here. I just might be in a different room of it, you know what I mean, and that material's still there. (laughs) So, I mean, that, on one hand, is awesome. And then on the other hand, you know, if you have a storytelling mechanic that's very rules light, that definitely, I think, would speak a lot more to kids who are typically more free form. This is speaking more on the play therapy, drama therapy aspect of this approach, that it just letting a kid go nuts, you, you're amazed sometimes at some of the content that that person talks about just because they're on a roll. And sometimes in your greatest moments of comfort, you may talk about something very, very sensitive to you. So either way, it can be absolutely cool. <laughs> to, to have that variance in system because it allows for that individualized level of comfort and connection. So, choice of a system, we didn't want to lock it down to any one system so no one would really feel alienated or ostracized. Uh, and we also didn't kind of want to bank for one over the other. You know, no favoritism here. Uh, everybody has oh, their sure. game. But, I mean, there are definitely benefits and drawbacks to each form. But, you know, realistically, it depends on the individual. Depends on the player and their preference.
4: Okay, so two things. First, my co hosts have informed me via the chat in the hangout that I mispronounced Todd Zerker's last name, so sorry about that, Todd. And second, so do you favor like one shots or full campaigns or some kind of like, you know, ARC based things when you're doing this therapeutically? Is this do you do it as kind of like a long term thing with recurring characters or
0: is it based purely on how much access you have to the kids you're dealing with? That would
1: be the biggest point to whether it would be the epic arc or, you know, something short burst. I would say that, I mean, again, it kind of depends on the individual and what and what their motivation and what their comfort level is. I mean, I think that one-shots wouldn't really lend themselves to this because if you're using more of an arc-long storyline format, you have more chance to not only be immersed and connected to your character... But speaking on the social aspects, you have more of a chance to develop that cohesion with the rest of the party. So, so when you have that cohesion with the rest of the party, you develop that better over a long term, plus you have more opportunity to construct longer narratives that would enable you to do that thing I mentioned earlier, where you're kind of immersing an element little by little over time. So it's that kind of small appearances of the big bad leading up to that kind of big fight, A long arc storyline definitely speaks more to that.
4: Okay. So that brings up another question. How large of a group do you usually use with this? I would imagine you've got a therapist as the GM, but how many patients do you have in the group? Well,
1: when we utilized it in the facility, um, we typically ran with like a group of maybe about three to four. I would definitely not recommend a a very large table setting for this type of thing. Yeah. Because for a couple different reasons. I mean, one... You need to make sure that you're kind of keeping an eye and, and a heart for the individuals to make sure to know where they're at, especially if something gets a little bit rough. Also, uh, and again, it depends on people, but I mean, learning those problem-solving group dynamic things, typically you'll form closer bonds with a smaller group a lot quicker because there's less people. Also gives, you know, folks more opportunity to throw in, to play. So, I mean, there, there are a lot of benefits. I, w- I would say three to four would be an optimum group.
4: I've always kind of found that's the sweet spot for role-playing groups anyway. Oh, yeah. I really, I really like three players and a GM.
0: I eh, uh, uh, It depends on the game for me, but yeah, three to four... Four is actually my, my good number. I, I definitely get the point, though, about not wanting to share the spotlight around too much. I think that's important, especially in a game with younger kids who... Well, let's face it. Little kids often
4: yeah. shorter attention span.
0: Well, a shorter attention span, and frankly, they want to be noticed more. You know, they haven't learned the patience of wait your turn quite as much. Yeah, I, I say having recently discovered that there's a toddler in my house instead of an infant. Um, so... <laughs> ah, welcome, Where welcome. Where did you come from? <laughs> I wonder that myself, and the answer Just is wait usually to
3: kindergartner. Oh, I know. Go ahead, Brandon. So as we were talking about the size of the group. I had a thought, which was, do they all need to be patients, and do, do they all need to be a certain level of uh, along the track to get a benefit of this, or uh, things like that? I don't, I don't know if I'm exactly saying the proper words or terms for things. Okay. Uh, if I'm being unclear, please ask, and I'll well, try to well, explain. Well, if you are,
4: I still want the answer to the question that you asked when you were trying to ask the one you were actually asking, so let's <laughs> let him answer. <laughs> okay, which question am I on? <laughs> do they all need to be at the same level and do they all need to be patients? I think are the, are the two things that he asked that I would love to hear the answers to. Well,
1: I, I think it would depend on, on what the dynamic and the structure is of how you're exactly running this. If you're running it in a therapeutic setting, the way that we're kind of envisioning, and we have multiple different projects that we're looking at at this point, one being kind of like an after school program set up for teens, kind of like an Olivets for role players where, you know, this is where you engage in these activities, maybe some anger management or something ancillary for folks that may have that kind of issue. I would say it's not necessary that everyone is a patient, so to speak. I mean, if you're using it as kind of a group format approach, it would probably be beneficial, especially if you have other group that they would meet and talk about, then you could possibly bring things from the game into the session. Okay. So so that's one option. I mean, the whole idea behind it, again, as as we're developing it, is that we want to be very kind of aware of the multiple uses of it because, I mean, just as any gaming group is going to be very open forum, there are groups that operate better with, you know, folks who have just started playing versus folks who have played for years. Um, I, I would say that there would be some benefit with having therapeutically-minded sessions that would include people who are not client, but that would probably be more akin to like more of a home thing where like if a parent would be running a session for their child and friends, you wouldn't contain maybe the high therapy topics, but it would still be therapeutic. You know, like I said before, things like dealing with bullies or dealing with anger. So it doesn't speak to one specific style Uh, I would say if you're dealing, though, as always, if you're dealing with heavy therapeutic topics like things like trauma and such, you would definitely want to keep that within a group setting, I mean, mostly for confidentiality purposes. So if someone would have any kind of breakthrough during the context of that, that information wouldn't be jarring or stigmatizing for that person. Like if I suddenly was like, you know, I want to talk about my abuse. You don't want to make that child feel unsafe at all within that context, especially for such a moment like that. So in that effect, if you're talking heavy-level therapy concepts, you might want to keep it just as a client-based group activity. But if you're dealing with like a home-based thing where you're teaching just kind of regular good moral lessons, good behavior adjuncts, stuff like that, I, I would say open it up because the social benefits would just be phenomenal.
0: That clears that up actually really well. The last question I've got for you before we move on to our last topic here. Is it always a therapist who's in the GM role, in the kind of therapy you're talking about? Or is there an opportunity for players, or excuse me, for patients and people who need to work through issues, is there some benefit in giving them the GM role? Oh,
1: without a doubt. there extreme benefit. I mean, I would say there's kind of two different ways you could look at it. One, from the perspective of a person who's been a victim. The sheer empowerment of running a session, crafting a session, being quote-unquote in control of that world can be Uh phenomenally empowering to that person. A lot of people who have been victimized definitely don't feel that they had any control because that power was taken away from them. So that empowerment can be huge to that person.
4: I can see that. It's a heady rush when you're not dealing with any issues. Yeah.
1: Right. And and I mean, especially even maybe crafting a scenario. And I mean, because I'm I'm looking at it for kind of deeper benefits that if I'm dealing with a problem, I could perhaps even set that up as a scenario for my players as a way to gain kind of silent feedback on how would someone else handle this. So as a DM, you could even teach a kid to use this as their own form of gaining therapy or insight that they would then craft a session about an issue they're having, seeking feedback kind of from their players. Hmm. Hadn't thought about that. And I was to say, on the, on the perpetrator, a person who may have victimized another person, I mean, I would say that the lesson there is is power balanced. That, you know, running the session and learning not to take advantage of that power could be a very powerful right. lesson as well.
0: Okay. Turning it into, into an actual, uh, what we've tended to call collaborative storytelling as opposed to, I'm the GM, these are my rules, you're going to play through my story, and I'm going to railroad you through it. Right. Yeah,
1: and, and there's a lot you can do. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you brought up collaborative storytelling. That was kind of part of some of my notes, because the way we're looking at, at constructing our manual is it's pretty much a ground-up thing, selecting a system, creating characters, creating a world. I mean, there's even a lot of power just in when you create the system and the milieu you play in as a group. There's even an empowerment in there in that, you know, I'm not playing in your world, but we're playing in our world. So me creating maybe an NPC inside, I'm contributing to the world that's also maybe like a safe person to go to inside of the gaming world. That also is empowering just creating what this world looks like. So it offers far more engagement. I mean, not to mention the creativity and, you know, all those benefits that come along. There's just so much you can do with this approach. It's it's literally limitless at this point.
4: Tell me more about this book that you're working on. Do you have a title? Do you have any idea when you want to have this out? Is this going to be something that's going to be available like generally in bookstores? And I ask because I work in one. Oh, nice. Um, tell me more about the about the manual. Uh,
1: well, I mean, at this point what we're looking at is is devise originally we had thought of kind of like a straight-up clinical This is the research, this is... And then the more we started thinking about it, we are like, well, wait a minute. We we don't just want to talk about this approach of beneficial aspects just being a therapist's only can play kind of a thing. Because we know a lot of people who grew up in the gaming boom are parents now. They have their own children. And, you know, some of those children would have issues. So let's marry the hobby as not only a connective point for the parent and their child but also there's clearly therapeutic benefits. Like I said, I myself as a gamer know them firsthand. So we then kind of started to think, well, what if we made this a more accessible kind of fun way of looking at how this can operate? And the idea was, well, okay, what are some roadblocks? Well, first of all, we, we have the roadblock of what if a therapist or a parent has never played a game? So we then thought, well, what if we run it as kind of a how-to manual we didn't want to go too heavy because pretty much every RPG book has a what is role-playing, What, how does it work kind of scenario. So we'd have to spin right. it a little bit to make it, here's how you select the system. Well, when you select the system... Well,
4: and I don't think you need to worry too much about redundancy because, unfortunately, a lot of those what is role-playing, how do you do it, things at the beginning of books are kind of cursory and therefore are kind of inadequate. Agreed. Basically, take a person
1: from the ground up who maybe has, just let's assume that the person's never role-played before. So talk about how to select the system, learning the rules, what are the challenges that make, because, you know, we kind of looked at it as kind of like a dummies format, almost, where here's some of the core concepts we're going to hit on throughout, and as we touch on them, here they are. When you're selecting a system, make sure to pay attention to the genre you're picking, or make sure to look at whether it's rules-light or rules-heavy. At every step of the process, we're kind of guiding the person to how to construct the whole activity therapeutically, and then getting into the meat and potatoes on how to craft the system and how to create the world. Because uh, even the act of character creation is extensively therapeutic, because you're basically beta testing your personality, especially in adolescence, hmm. aspects going all the way up to you know what your alignment is, you know these are all things like, well, let me play a good guy for a while and see how that goes or let me play kind of a shifty character and let me see what that's like. You're literally going through that teenage expansion period of road testing parts of who you might want to or want not to be. So, letting parents in and and also clinicians in on how all of the aspects of a role-playing game have therapeutic benefit it's just about trying to construct an environment where the therapy is allowed to grow but it on the same hand isn't too heavy and that's and that's a tough balance to maintain so so you
4: mentioned the dummies series are you planning on using kind of a similar lighthearted informal tone when you're writing it then or uh,
1: yeah to a very large part i mean uh, uh, obviously sections and chapters that will speak to sensitive topics like Persons who have suffered trauma, you know, we definitely want to not be quite so lighthearted in those in those sections, uh, but we actually... Yeah,
0: you run the risk of being flippant.
1: Uh, exactly, and, and you definitely don't want to underscore the severity of, of that scenario. So we kind of thought, uh, actually, on one hand, we're looking at designing it to almost look like an RPG manual, you know, with very nice <laughs> color illustrations and, you know, little character sides and such like that to kind of make it... Because a lot of of books that I've read about gaming, which are phenomenal, mostly because I speak the gaming lingo, I know what crunch means. I know what, you know, player character and non-player character. So, at the same time, we wanted to make sure, as we're crafting and creating this, that the lingo itself is inviting and not kind of ostracizing the person. Because, you know, as welcoming as the gaming culture is to folks, there's also kind of an air of unintentional smugness that can happen sometimes. Well, it's a subculture, yeah, exa- you know, with it's, that. its own
4: language yep. and its own kind of traditions and that sort of thing. And until you get familiar with those, it can be a little intimidating,
1: yep. Mm-hmm. and just trying to break down some of those walls. I mean, at this point, we've started crafting our our kind of skeleton bones outline. Uh, I mean, conceivably we're looking you know within a year, year and a half to try and get something off the ground, and we want to definitely have it available in in traditional bookstores, ebook format looking also maybe like things like uh, drive through RPG and such, just really just trying to get it into as many hands as possible to really proliferate the use and, you know, the kind of positive aspects of role-playing, which definitely have been severely underscored over the years, <laughs> to speak a bit lightly.
4: Yeah, it sounds like something that, frankly, both the therapeutic industry and the role-playing industry have desperately needed for a long time.
0: Yeah, I'm just wondering where I can place my pre-orders. Yeah, no <laughs> kidding.
4: <laughs> just, uh, this is the definition of a day one purchase for me, so... Yeah.
1: Well, but thank you. That Wow.
4: <laughs> Tell me a little bit about kind of the research process that you go through in developing this, because it sounds like you're doing some, like, I guess for lack of a better term, clinical trials of this.
1: Most of the clinical trials were, you know, things that we did when we were still working in the facility, which were quite a number of years ago. So we haven't had really the opportunity because of the lack of funding and such for programs like this. We really haven't had the the chance to take it to a clinical level as far as trials lately. That's one of the steps that we're moving into. I mean, there's a couple different organizations. I know the website, The RPG Research, is definitely a phenomenal resource. CARPGA, the Committee for the Advancement of Role-Playing Games, is a wonderful website to check out as well. One of the problems I've kind of seen is there's basically not much research past, I would say, 2001, 2002, maybe, on therapeutic benefit. And a lot of the articles that are out there were those mid-80s articles, a lot of them kind of written by, you know, organizations like BAD, Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons, you know, and a lot of them are Mm -hmm. kind of more focusing on the negative is this harmful aspect. I have to say that a lot of European countries have been doing a lot of very good research about therapeutic applications specifically to different diagnoses. So, I mean, the first step always is to kind of do a lip review, to look at what's out there in the field currently. Um, I know that a woman named Sarah Lynn Bowman has written a phenomenal book that you may want to check out. I'm actually pulling up the title here on my Kindle. I have it, so my apologies there. She wrote a wonderful book that is called The Functions of Role-Playing Games, which uh, is under-titled How Participants Create Community, Solve Problems, and Explore Identity. And it's it's a very wonderfully written book that, you know, kind of mixes a little bit of LARP with a little bit of RPG as well, talking about a lot of those therapeutic aspects. But really, most of what's been written is kind of dated. So... One, it's all about getting that information, getting that lit review together, seeing you know what some of the limitations were, what some of the pitfalls might be, and then trying to figure out, because uh, the big question with any therapeutic approach even suggested is going to be legitimizing it. And it's all about, well, it's a great idea, but how do we measure it? And unfortunately, a lot of the benefits that we're talking about aren't really the most quantitative Right. They're, they're the most qualitative. Isn't that kind of
4: a problem with therapy in general, though? I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of hard to put numeric values on emotional healing, isn't it? it
1: very hard. I mean, looking at the, at the quantitative analysis, I mean, anything that typically that is grant funded and, and such like that typically is show me how it helps. And we are dealing with mostly kind of anecdotal personal introspective kind of growth that you know if a person feels comfortable they may not feel comfortable stepping in front of like a lie detector kind of deal to, to validate how they feel better. so there's definitely a challenge with that. So I mean on one hand it's definitely a, a, ther- a theoretical approach which will have benefit. I know play therapy and drama therapy validates the approach in and of itself but when we're talking about use for higher level concepts, that is definitely going to require some clinical trials which, you know, may, may be a little bit hard to measure. That will definitely be a challenge, I would have to say. But, you know, we're definitely up for it. That That's for sure. Uh, every, everyone that has come in contact with, you know, Bodana, the mission, you know, this concept of therapeutic gaming, everyone has been, you know, go, do it. This has been a long time coming. So we're definitely not afraid of, of the mountain ahead of us.
4: <laughs> Speaking of that, Take a couple of minutes and plug the stuffing out of Bodana Group. Uh, where's your website if people want to donate? Because I think our our listenership would probably overlap very heavily with the people who would want to donate to a 501c3 charity like yours. Uh, tell us about it. Give us all the contact information.
1: Okay. Well, the uh, the main website for the organization is org. B-O-D-H-A-N-A. And on that website, we do have a How You Can Help Donate button. Uh, Also on the website, you will see the various uh, activities and things that we do. So you'll definitely know where your donation is going to. One of the things we do is we speak at colleges to people entering the social services field to tell them about compassion fatigue, which is another big thing with us, especially, you know, having worked with the population that we have for a while, that can kind of shift your worldview a little bit. So you have to come into this field definitely aware that, You're going to look at things a little differently after after you're kind of forced to accept realities that other people would like to pretend are not there. So it's kind of an inherent occupational hazard, as it were. Uh, So we speak on that. We've also uh, somewhat recently started a series speaking to parents about ways to keep their child safe while at the same time not instilling paranoia or fear in the world we live in. Because, uh, you know, despite local news and whatnot, the world is not a heavily dangerous place. It's it's a beautiful place with a lot of wonderful people. You know, so it's about just being honest, being caring, being open, being communicative uh, to just help your children make good decisions and empower them the same way that we talk about empowering individuals in treatment. If you give child choices, if you give child good options of who to go to if there's a problem, that does far more than something like stranger danger which is, you know, not unheard of, but some, somewhat of a myth, to a point.
4: This kind of comes back full circle to what you were saying earlier about focus on what you can do than more than what you can't or shouldn't do, right? Oh, yeah,
1: definitely. Uh, what, one of my favorite stories my wife found on, on the web was uh, there's a, a young child who had gone missing, and they were in the woods. And the, the child, sadly, was in the woods for about a good six to eight hours, because the child had been taught not to talk to strangers and specifically avoid men. And the rescuers were all male. So the child wouldn't respond to people looking for them because they were Hmm. afraid that they were going to do something to them. So it's kind of that, you know, so they were out a lot longer. People were right in the area calling for the child, and they were so kind of afraid by stranger danger that they couldn't accept the help because they had been told not to. And it's an unintentional thing that, you know, I mean, we don't want to have our children growing up fearing the world, because children's exploration of the world they live in, is it's how we develop healthily. You know, it's how we, we form our friendships, and it's how we interact.
4: Yeah, if you never talked to a stranger, you'd have a really lonely life. Yeah, very much. you yeah. <laughs> say nothing if you'd have a really hard time adjusting to a new job.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you put it in a, in a Christian context, hey, I need to join a new church, but I don't want to talk to anybody I don't know? Yeah, how does you know? that work? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to evangelize, but I'm not going to talk to anybody. I'm just going to stand silently on the street corner? It, no, it doesn't work. Right. You know, we, we we have to be taught to engage with people, and I don't know, my, I've always kind of tried, Maybe I haven't done this successfully, certainly <laughs> throughout my life, but I've always tried to just sort of assume people are generally okay until they prove otherwise to me, so... Yeah you know. Now, sometimes they prove otherwise very quickly, but... Yeah,
4: I remember reading a book called The Sociopath Next Door a few years ago, and I've forgotten most of it, but the one thing that I took away from that is they're only about 4% of the population, which means that 96% of the population is basically decent.
1: Yeah, and and (laughs) and even going a little bit further, people that... I I know the book of of which you're speaking. uh, You know, a lot of people who are sociopathic aren't aggressive or harmful people uh, a sociopath could be that car salesman that doesn't really care that you're paying 34 interest on a car they're worried about yeah. feeding their family they're not thinking about you they're thinking about themselves so even within that right. percentage it's it's not you know every sociopath isn't dexter or you know something of that sort
0: right yeah not every day is a episode of Criminal Minds.
3: Exactly. Yeah, that is that is something that I heard that a lot of sociopaths, while there are a whole bunch in prison because they tend to go there, there's a couple more that are in like Wall Street and they're running things because they don't care. They're right. great business people and they're thinking logically about it yeah. and not being emotional.
1: Yeah, completely correct. So those are some of the things that we do. Like I said, our, our big projects right now are definitely going towards the, the therapeutic gaming asp- aspect. And we're working very hard to get a method together. And like I said, the biggest thing that we're thinking of is, is you know, some type of community center, some type of, of center to study this aspect. And, you know, not only therapeutic gaming in a role-playing context, but also benefits of things like board games, which which are in and of themselves beneficial. So, you mm-hmm. know, gaming as a hobby in general has various benefits. It's It's, I guess our approach is kind of how do we really get the best benefit out of this as an activity while not destroying the fun of the activity?
4: Right. Well, let's let's be honest. The more uh, success that they have, the more gamers there are in the world. Whether they get there through the normal route or through therapy,
0: there's still more gamers. Oh, of so course. So another reason to support these folks. <laughs> yeah, keep the hobby <laughs> alive. More people to play with. And I think it gets back to something you said really at the very beginning of our discussion, which is you want to have therapy that is fun and doesn't feel like work or something mandated to sit down and try and fix yourself. It's fun. Uh And by by opening this up, you're getting the best of of that really exploding marketplace of ideas. I mean, you want to talk about a a good time to try and think about how role-playing games and board games make things better for you now with Kickstarter and crowdfunding ideas and the the lines between content creators and publishers and consumers blurring so much, now's the right time to do it. Oh, yeah.
4: Well, and isn't that kind of the secret to making anything beneficial stick? I mean, they say that, you know, people who go out and play sports with their friends have a much better chance of exercising regularly than people that just go to the gym and slog on a treadmill miserably for half an hour. Oh,
1: yeah. Sure. Well, th- there's tremendous amounts of science being done right now on on just simply the therapy of play in general. And they started by looking at animals in nature and just examining how, you know, polar bears and, and jaguars, well, not jaguars, they're not in the same area, but how, you know, just... <laughs> I don't watch a lot of Animal Planet, is that obvious? <laughs> how How animals in nature that might seem to be enemies, will engage in play. They'll just hop around with each other, you know, kind of like my cat and my dog. You know, they, they jump around with each other and they go nuts, and there's an inherent benefit just in play. just Just play, have fun. Mm. There's so much work being done with that, that any play activity, just the very fact that you're letting go, you're relaxing, you're letting your guard down to enjoy that space, that in and of itself is very liberating. And it's very freeing, not to mention chemical rushes, endorphin rushes, self-esteem rush. I mean, there's so many benefits just with basic play that if you have something that's more targeted, you know, like we said, very beginning with role-playing, having social aspects and, you know, the creative output that comes by a, as a part of role-playing, why not capitalize on that and and really bring some good hardline benefit? To something that is in and of itself an enjoyable hobby, why not tap into that vein? But again, don't make it too obvious because then you know you've tapped too deep. <laughs> so you know it's it's always that trickiness, but definitely worthwhile.
4: So otters are the mentally healthiest animals in the world.
1: Well, and besides, they're cute because they do human things. <laughs> 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 it's true. So maybe that's why they're happy, because they're the closest animals to opposable thumbs. Yeah.
4: yeah. yeah them them awesome. and raccoons. Opposable thumbs are pretty awesome. I've had a pair of them for my whole <laughs> life, and i got to say I'm a fan. Yeah, I'm
1: pretty attached to mine. brum Hey! <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I, I wouldn't be Jack without at least one bad joke.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Then I won't edit it out. <laughs> Should we wind it down here? Or? I guess so. Wow. Yeah. Jack, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's been a delight to talk to you. I want to have you back to talk about some of this other stuff that you've brought up. Yeah, please keep us in the loop as this develops. And yeah, as you- definitely. Without a doubt, I will. I, I really think, honestly, we could do a whole episode on compassion fatigue alone.
1: Oh, yeah. I, oh, I would love that.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, I think there's a lot to talk about. I'm really looking forward to having you back. So thanks very much. Yeah. Um, I want to, once again, repeat that if you're able to get to Lancaster, Pennsylvania... October 11th through the 13th, and you've got 40 bucks for an awesome gaming weekend, you should totally go to Save Against Fear.
3: I am trying my best to get to Save Against Fear myself. It is mainly the 40 bucks which is the issue, because I am a poor post-college student. <laughs> then you myself. and I will talk after we
0: stop recording. All um, right. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll have a link in the show notes, of course, but SaveAgainstFear.com, go look at it right now, and... Jack, thank you again. It's been a yeah, real pleasure so to talk much.
1: to you. Thank thank you guys as well. It uh, I have to say for my for my first ever podcast experience, it has been absolutely wonderful. Uh, you guys are, are incredibly friendly, incredibly great to talk to, and, and thank you. Uh, on behalf of Bodana, for for allowing us a platform to discuss our ideas and and get them out to everybody, I uh, uh, we're really looking to generate some good excitement, maybe some web-based kind of conversations, getting people's ideas and testimonials out there. So you know, yeah. please, yeah. Uh, say if you have any stories out there of how gaming has helped you, just send them to the Bodana group at gmail dot com, and I would love to hear your stories. We'd love to be able to use them to kind of generate this approach. Uh, it, this is going to be a grassroots kind of thing, so please, share share your stories.
0: Awesome. Uh, then I think we're going to wrap it up here. Folks, thanks for listening. We appreciate it, of course. And from all of us here at Saving the Game, have a good one. Yep. Thank you. Good night, everybody.
3: <laughs> Peace out.
0: This has been a production of Saving the Game, copyright 2013. This podcast may be redistributed under a Creative Commons non-commercial non-derivative license, provided that credit is given to savingthegamepodcast.org. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. For past episodes, podcast news from our hosts, or to connect with us, visit our
2: website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, and happy gaming.